Hello, friends. You're listening to Exit Point, a podcast about the advancement of base jumping and an exploration of its culture. I'm Laurent Fratt, producer and co-host. If you'd like to support this independent production, you can visit our Buy Me a Coffee link in the description and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, I sit down with Yuri Kuznetsov. Yuri made his first skydive when he was 13 years old, made his first base jump in 1994 with skydiving gear, and has since made thousands of jumps. He's been active in urban, terminal, wingsuiting, slider down, you name it. To say that he's experienced is a massive understatement. I'm looking forward to hearing some of his stories from back in the day, how his motivations around base have changed over the years, and talk about how he's remained so resilient. So with that, let's get Yuri on the track. You sent me a copy of your digital logbook and uh, had the pleasure of um, reading through it. And you started base jumping in 1994, according to your log. That makes you in the sport for 29 years. And, you know, we generally figure that most people have a career that lasts about five years. And so that makes your career in base about six times longer than the average. What do you think has made you successful? And and when I say successful, I mean fun times time, <laughs> right? Because success means you're having more fun. So tell me, is there anything that you can point to that's kept you in the game for so long? Uh, there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of luck involved in it and possibly a little bit of skill. But also uh, stopping and starting again a couple of times, uh, I suppose that helped to uh, reignite it. When you come after a break, uh, it's a whole new sport. Things changed a lot. People changed quite a bit. There is a big turnover, like you said. So, uh, yeah, that's probably one of the uh, pieces of the puzzle. But otherwise, it's just always been uh, an interesting game for me. And it shifted from uh, base jumping as such from urban stuff to the mountains. Uh, that became a slightly different sport altogether. So yeah, all of that, all the changes, uh, that keeps keeps the blood flowing. And people, I suppose, people you uh, jump with, that keeps uh, half of the fun at least. Speaking of people you're doing it with, I mean, starting back then in, in 94, uh, I mean, I figure, I like looking at your logbook. You you did over a thousand base jumps before I even started, um, which is uh, you know that's busy. You're doing a lot of jumps. Um, you may be one of the more active people um, for that span of of time. Uh, are there any other people that are still in the sport that uh, you remember from back in the day? Uh, back in the day. I was jumping a lot with uh, Vertigo, so Marta comes to mind right away. Uh, she would be probably the most well-known long-timer. She's been jumping way longer than me, and she's still active. So, yeah, Vertigo crew was our uh, go-to place uh, for uh, American East Coast winters. Probably from about 95, 96, uh, we've been jumping a lot together. All right. I saw some pictures of Annie Holloway as well in your logbook. 
Um, yep. There's a... Yeah, that came probably a couple of years later, but yeah, we had some good trips on the West Coast as well. Yeah, lots of um, interesting and familiar faces in your book. It's uh, it's cool to check out. I recommend it to everybody. Um, how um, how is your perception? I mean, because you say that one of the things that sort of helps you um, be successful is uh, the way that you approach it, or or the margins that you take, and and being conservative how would you say your perception of risk has changed over the years? Huh? Well, the change is quite easy to define. Uh, when you start, you look at things and you say, whoa, I can do it. You think this can actually work. After 10 years or a thousand jumps, you look at the same jump and you think, hmm, it actually may fail. So, <laughs> you know, things could go wrong as opposed to, yeah, they could actually go right. So when you start, it's just that one jump you want to do, and most likely it will be fine. After a thousand jumps, you look back and think, hmm, I possibly want to make another thousand. So the chances I want to take are probably different now. So 1% chance of failure is just not good enough any longer. You saw like quite a bit of carnage in your early jumps, like reading through the log, there's someone breaks an ankle, someone breaks a leg, there's a fatality on the load. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope that your base jumping isn't quite as chaotic these days. And I would assume that's sort of like the evolution of the sport in a way, while we do continue to have accidents and stuff, it's just, it's, it seemed like fairly abundant just reading your log. Would you say that that's the case? Yeah, I suppose the amount of carnage per jump was quite a bit higher back in the day. We still have heaps of carnage, but the number of jumps increased tenfold. Uh, at some point, it became so much. One summer, we uh, we made that infamous carnage tape. I think with Tom Yellow is JJ. We just had way too many accidents, incidents, death, and carnage over the uh, span of probably two or three months in the summer. And I think that could have been the year that JJ was thinking about uh, giving it up as well. But yeah, it's definitely been riskier back uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Not that wingsuits improved it a lot, but uh, I think number-wise, statistics are slightly better nowadays. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, looking back at your logbook again, uh, I see that you know you made your first jumps in a skydiving container. Yep, the uh, bridge day 94. That was four jumps. Uh, packed slider down in a bag in a skydiver, uh, yeah, skydiving rig. With a sail slider, maybe? Just, no, no, no slider, slider, slider down. down. Sorry, you said that right. That's uh, that's wild. And um, there's one of those jumps that it says in your log that it was the death jump. What what happened there? What, what made it the death jump? Oh, the uh, bridge day 95. That was a free fall uh, canopy collision. I was also quite infamous because it went round and round and uh, TV, can't remember uh, which TV show it was, but they kept showing it in the States for probably 10 years thereafter. Uh, Will Forche filmed it and it was really good footage. So it just went on and on on TV. I was pure stupidity. I think I did three jumps with a friend of mine, three two ways before that. 
and then showed up at the exit and there was a two-way going so i just joined them for a three-way no planning nothing surprise and uh yeah didn't work out <laughs> as good as we thought it would but yeah everybody was alive and well so it just gave us really really good footage that's yeah all right well that's a luck a lot of people listening to this and including myself don't know all the juicy details so please like tell us from beginning to end how did it how did it go i was a two-way just about ready to go i said hey let's do the three-way and i said okay i was slider up uh uh the girl in front of me she was slider down i was supposed to be on the side and somehow we had a little gap like quarter of a second between us so i wasn't on the side i ended up on the side and above her and that was just enough for a canopy to fill the space and there was nothing i could do i knew she was slider down if i pitched i would still hit so i did turn 180 but i didn't move anywhere I didn't have any speed and hit the canopy did a full loop came out pitched hit the water and that was it and and then did so like the the river like landing in the river with a parachute can be pretty gnarly so i we... well it's it's bridge day so the boat picks you up within five seconds you're uh, on the beach in less than a minute and then everybody was shaken everybody was alive and well but really shaken and uh all i could think of just get up back to the top and make another jump so i was back up on top probably in the next 20 minutes half an hour later i have made another jump just to uh, clear it off my mind and yeah that was i think jump number five that bridge day and quite a party uh after that obviously <laughs> that was yeah the heyday what um you you said earlier and i don't remember if this was off air or not now but um that you had a couple of times where you quit uh or that you took a break from the sport um what prompted those gaps in your jumping uh that came way later in the game and the first gap i basically just burned out i had too much fun i finally after many many years i quit my office job and i went on i think it was two years of travel and about a year into it just travel jump travel jump enjoying it i suddenly burned out i've done too much too many jumps too much travel and it just didn't excite me anymore so i didn't quit i didn't stop i just went on traveling and then i realized hmm, i think it's been a couple of weeks since i jumped and then you forget about it and then oh it's been a couple of months and it went on like that and uh, i didn't jump for two years did you find something that replaced it for you or did you just um yeah tell me a little bit about that uh that um i didn't think about it much at the beginning and then i think right around that time uh i started scuba diving and technical scuba and that was quite interesting that was quite exciting so when i did think about some sport to replace uh base scuba was an obvious choice and for maybe a couple of years I really got my highs out of uh, technical scuba deep air uh, in particular, which is, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like base jumping on drugs with drugs built in. And you really have to do it right. The, uh, the risks are probably higher than base jumping. And there are many ways to die. And most of them, you don't sense, you don't feel, you just have to know about them. It's like radiation. So it was exciting, but again, couple of years into it, it, it faded off. It 
could not replace Base. It was good enough, but no, nah, it couldn't replace it. In the long term, it just didn't uh, deliver the way the Base does. I suppose so. Yeah, it's it's just a different kind of high. You know, when we base jump, you're on a peak for a minute, and then you chill on your uh, endorphins. When you uh, do a technical dive, it lasts for an hour, a couple hours, and you have to be on top of it all this time. So it's a different high. It's it's still very exciting, but it's just not the same game. Mm. And looking, you know, kind of jumping ahead, I did try to uh, look for other stuff to replace with. with uh, nope, couldn't find anything that would replace it as such. You can live your life happily doing other stuff, but you cannot replace that specific high. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is that your motivations for jumping really comes from like a, a sense of pleasure or getting high. Is, is that right? Uh, not really. That's what you think at the beginning because it is a lot of fun. But there are so many aspects to it. There is fun of jumping. There are, well, there are friends you jump with. There are mountains or if you're on top of a building or antenna, the views are amazing. You basically put yourself in a position where you don't belong. It's like being on another planet altogether, whether it's a building or a mountain or whatever it happens to be. Urban could be quite uh, quite visual. Uh, but later on, you realize it's not it. Usually people try to describe it as you live in a moment. You suddenly realize that's what people call Zen moment. You leave, your brain stops and you just leave. You don't have any thoughts. You leave in that particular second, fraction of a second. And the trick is to stretch it to where you uh, live in it all day long. <laughs> when you come to yoga, meditation and so on, that's the idea. So a lot of people will say, yep, we base jump because we want to live in a moment. And we just can't do it outside of base yet. Do you have a lot of experience with yoga and meditation? Uh, I've done quite a bit of it uh, <clears throat> later in life. That was the second time I stopped jumping for three years. That's when I was living uh, in Thailand on Koh Phangan, very, very happily uh, and doing free diving yoga, pretty uh, healthy lifestyle. And it was good enough that I stopped jumping. Again, I didn't quit. It just, it just happened that I stayed off it for a month and then for half a year and then it stretched into three years. Yeah, oftentimes I sort of think that um, how nice it could be just to be content, you know, staying at home, uh, going for walks and doing things that are simple. And there's oftentimes like this call for the mountains that uh, complicates my life to a tremendous level. Like, uh, you know, first like driving, getting all the gear together, um, the hours of hiking, uh, the training that it requires, it's very thorough endeavor, right? And if I was able to sit on a cushion and feel like content, man, they sure would make life easier. But um, I think both of us are, are, are of similar minds when um, that, that sense of contentment that comes from our activity, it's, it's just, uh, I haven't been able to reach that state yet. Huh. Well, something both base and yoga and meditation will teach us is nothing is permanent. Everything changes. So, yeah, you're content and you could be content for a month or it could be a couple of years and suddenly it changes. And 
you're not enjoying it anymore for some reason or another. And that's exactly what happened. I was quite happy on the island and suddenly I wasn't that happy. We decided to move to Europe and Europe is beautiful. And there you are, the mountains are right above you. You drive or you walk by and uh, <laughs> it only takes a few months and you're up on top and uh, yeah, you hike a couple of times and then you think, well, maybe I'll just do a jump. And there you are, full on bike in the sport. You know, except it's a different sport. Uh, now it's wingsuits in the mountain, paralpinism, or any way you want to call it. It's quite different from the uh, good old school base. You know, you we talked at the beginning. Uh, I asked you what were some of the secrets to success, and um, one of the commonalities that we find talking with uh, our guests is that uh, personal awareness is um, a really important ingredient. Um, being able to step outside of yourself and uh, make judgment calls about the actions that you're taking. Do you think that you gained additional personal awareness through your practice of meditation and yoga? Uh, absolutely. Just not as much as I would wish for, but it helps. Uh, same goes for base jumping. That gives you a pretty good boost uh, in awareness, risk management, well, even common sense. I suppose you need common sense to begin with to uh, survive any uh, length of time and base, but it builds up as well. So you, um, you come from a family of skydivers, right? So then you've, you were skydiving with your family in the Soviet Union. Is that right? Uh, well, yes and no. I come from a skydiving family, but back when I was a kid, it was indeed a Soviet Union and you could not just show up at the drop zone and jump. So I've done my first skydive when I was 13, but it was a pirate jump, just a reunion of old time jumpers. And the next jump I did was actually when the uh, Soviet Union broke and suddenly a commercial drop zone was in place of the military uh, airfield. So I showed up and I could just pay and get on the plane and jump. And that was it. And I was 18 uh, by that time. So my second jump was 18 and it was no longer a Soviet Union. That was wild new Russia. You pay and you get whatever you want. So it just unrolled from there. The beauty of capitalism, right? Communism, no well, skydiving. Capitalism, you can pay and go jump. <laughs> well, yes and no. But I suppose back in the day, you could get on the team and you would get free jumping and, well, free everything but if you're not in a military or semi-paramilitary team then nah you couldn't jump so yeah good and bad right uh, i joke mostly um so then though that Likewise. that first jump was uh did you jumping around yeah yeah that was a big uh big military uh round study climb and i was probably i don't know like 45 kilos <laughs> took me a while to uh to get down <laughs> Just taking you wherever the wind blew. Yep. Yeah. Wow. And um, so your mom and dad were both military jumpers then. Well, not military, uh, sport jumpers. It's just it just happened that sport was uh, paramilitary back then. Okay. So to be on a proper team, you were uh, technically uh, well either a member of military or a paramilitary, uh, whatever it was called back then. And uh, again, going back to your logbook, there was uh, a lot of building jumps, a lot of slick, a lot of um, old school and slider down. 
um, and then you took a break and uh, well, sorry, no, you had, and then did you have wingsuiting? Cause I see some pictures of you in a uh, sky flyer and, uh, some of the old, the, the first wingsuits ever made. Um, tell me a little bit about that era when wingsuiting first came into the scene. Let's see. Yeah, it's probably been six years of pure base jumping because wingsuits didn't exist. And then in 99, the first first suits appeared. We also Patrick, obviously. And then friends of mine in Moscow actually made a very <laughs> crude wingsuit prototype out of a ski jumper neoprene suit with wings uh, attached to it. And then uh, Birdman just appeared out of nowhere. So there was Yari and uh, Robbie and the uh, Birdman classic came up. And yeah, that was it. Summer of 1999 in Chirag, we all reconvened with those first suits. And once you try it, there is no way back. Did you make a skydive with a wingsuit first or did you just send it off um, the cliff or what was that like? Let me remember, I did make a few skydives. It wasn't many, but I probably made a dozen or so, maybe a dozen, maybe about 20 skydives. Uh, I think on Classic, right before I went to Chirag. And it just felt natural. It was really easy for me. It just felt like, I don't know, like I already had a couple hundred jumps. It just flew. And just like everyone else, you said, oh, okay, this is going to make it safer, right? Because it'll make separation from the wall. Exactly. In the first few years, we had this foolish idea that it will make jumping so much safer because you will never, ever hit the wall again. <laughs> and yeah, it, it was a case for the first couple of years. Right. And then uh, it all went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Figuratively and literally. Yep. Do you, do you have any early hard lessons uh, with wingsuits? Do you, do you remember any of like, oh shit, this is uh, I need to take this seriously? Hmm. Uh, I think my close calls were mostly uh, jumping slick way before wingsuits. And then the uh, wingsuiting, the first years of wingsuiting were actually quite safe. It was actually getting you away from the object and opening quite high and everything went all right. The, uh, yeah, the close calls started to come in later on when everyone started to flying either close to terrain or uh, trying to uh, outfly something and pulling real low. Mm. So uh, <laughs> there is a <laughs> there is a theory behind it. Uh, people try to uh, keep the same level of risk. People try to find a constant, like comfortable level of risk. And then if equipment gets better, they just pull lower. They just come closer to the cliff. They try to uh, keep it as risky as they wanted to begin with. So you cannot give them a safe tool and expect jumping to become much safer. No, they will uh, simply take thinner margins. That's sort of the same with skills as well, isn't it? Like uh, people are always on a constant quest for challenge. And uh, so if things become comfortable, then you just have to continue uh, making those margins smaller, right? To get that same sort of hit. Yeah, you keep the risk uh, constant. That's uh, that's the motto. <laughs> Has, have you ever felt like in, in your approach, like, okay, um, even if I'm not 
satisfied. This is like where I keeping my practice. Ha, as in uh, stopping before I get hurt. Yeah. Well, I mean, like sometimes like I find like myself doing that now lately where it's like, um, maybe the jump itself isn't like the primary motivation for the outing that day. And, you know, like I'll land and it won't be like the most amazing jump ever. And I just sort of have to have satisfaction with it being a, a humble jump or, um, not pushing my limits or, you know, I'm a dad now and I have some responsibilities to stay alive. And, um, I, I just, feel like for me, knowing that I'm not getting the most incredible jump in means that I'm staying within my margin a bit. Do you, do you ever have similar thoughts, feelings? Yeah, probably most of the time I tend not to push it too far. Anyway, I try to, uh, keep a reasonably thick margin and a lot of the time jump is not even the, uh, the goal. I like to be in the mountains and it's just a quick way down. So. I would guess probably a majority of my jumping is it's just an excuse to go up either it's a mountain I love or it's a new place that I want to see. And then, yeah, I hate hiking down, so I'll fly. Yeah. You must have bad knees like me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you moved to S Slovenia. And then yep. uh, you saw the mountains in your backyard and you uh, only couldn't uh, resist for a short period of time. And then you got back into base. And I'm assuming now that uh, the wingsuits were better, the gears better, people are using lasers to measure exit points. We've got the fly site and other GPS units to, to record and uh, mess with some data. What was it like coming back to the new base? Huh. Interesting. The first time I stopped for a couple of years, the game didn't change too much. I came right back into it and actually did some really nice flights, opened a bunch of new walls. And then uh, when it suddenly faded again and I didn't jump for three years and I came back to Europe, it was a different sport, sport altogether. Everything changed. The approach, the skills, the gear, and suddenly everyone is using fly sights, lasers, you put a flight profile before you jump. Everything was a new game. So I had to learn from the scratch like a student. I thought originally, yeah, I'll just make a couple of jumps on my old uh, Prodigy. Uh, just, you know, once a year, air out. And sure enough, next thing I know, I borrow a couple of uh, real suits from James at Brento. And then next thing I know, uh, I just bought a suit again. And... Uh, once I was on a proper suit, hmm, now I have to learn the whole game again. What I've done five years ago doesn't really cut it any longer. And that's where fly sites came up and all my friends uh, were, uh, well, I was lucky to hang out with uh, proper uh, professionals at the, uh, at the time. They knew how to train and what to do to get back in the game very quickly. So there we go, fly side headphones. Sky Derby baseline, here's your laser. And probably a year into it, uh, I was reasonably current. And two years into it, I felt like, yep, I could open new stuff. I could 
be, well, an average jumper now. And that's after being in the sport for 20 years. I felt like I'm just coming back up to speed. Uh, just to give you a perspective on how much things change in that short period of time. So <laughs> I smile every time I see somebody who just came into the sport and two years into it, they're uh, trying to go full on. You said that the approach was different. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. How do you see the approach changing? Uh, it became much, much, much more uh, technical, which again, it could have made things way safer. But all it does, it lets us uh, open harder, more technical exits with less of a margin. So yeah, we could take a laser <laughs> and a fly side to Brento, and it would be the safest thing in the world. Instead, we go and open a new cliff that's got a probably like an 80 meter rock drop with a 25 meter ledge, and then it goes to hell from there. <laughs> <laughs> are you um, are you listening to feedback from the fly site uh, with headphones on your flights? Uh, yeah, that's that's been a great training tool. In fact. I keep it on all of the jumps now because it's a good feedback. It's uh, quicker than your uh, brain can process visual uh, feedback. And to me personally, it doesn't annoy me at all. Uh, some people don't like it, but uh, technically and for uh, training, it's a great tool. That's something every new jumper needs to use for a while. Then you can get rid of it if uh, yeah, if you don't need it anymore. But it's it's just like having any uh, any of your uh, gauges in a plane. You don't really throw them away. Yeah, once once you get a student status, you don't throw throw away your uh, tools. Uh, they they're still useful. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with Michael Cooper the other day, um, the, the designer of FlySight, and uh, he was talking about just that uh, how quick the feedback is, and um, I can't remember how many milliseconds it is, but it's faster than your brain can process. Uh, and that even it's, it's so fast that even like when trying to correct it, that you can create this pilot induced oscillation, uh, just because of, um, you know, things are happening faster than you can think. And then your, you know, reflexes to respond. So, um, anyhow, um, I, um, what do you, what are the audio, uh, settings that you have giving you, uh, what, so what kind of feedback are you getting? Is it all audio sounds like, uh, or is it spoken word? Uh, the setup seems to be the same for all the competition jumpers uh, that I know. It's uh, spoken forward speed every two seconds. That seems to be the uh, the best setup. We've tried a million of different ways, and uh, the best feedback that actually is useful is forward speed spoken. Every two seconds. Yep, that seems to be empirically uh, the best. And then when you get that number in your ears um let's say you're going for because i i consider you as someone who's sort of really pushing the limits for glide flights like you have uh this hidden slovenia or secret slovenia video that you shared with me and man you're like jumping off of these cliffs and it just goes forever crossing into other valleys and whatnot and um the the, the glides are, are spectacular um, I want to talk more about that in particular, but first, like when you're using that speed number to get maximum glide out of your suit, um, can you work through that process with me a little bit just to understand better? Uh, well, 
if we speak about the uh, technical side of it, it's uh, it's quite simple uh, empirically. The aerodynamics, I suppose, are uh, a whole science. But for us, you just need to know your uh, polar curve of the suit. You need to know your uh, best glide speed, which for most of us will be, let's say, about 150k, as in kilometers, not miles. <laughs> and <laughs> if you keep it at that speed, uh, that's it. You're gliding. Uh, you want more speed if you're closer to uh, terrain. Uh, you could use a little bit less if you're soaring in thermals, but yeah, that's yeah, that's a simple uh, empirical guide. Just keep keep your ideal speed, and that's it. Uh, most of the time, you will not be just flying a straight line. You'd be playing with terrain. But if you have to get somewhere, yeah, you need to know how to uh, keep the suit on that uh, point in the polar curve, and that's that. Interesting. So I'm sort of just assuming that you uh, were doing a, a wide variety of, of practice with your suit off of objects like Brento, for example, uh, you were getting that feedback. And then by studying the data that you had, you ascertained what your polar curve is and realized that, okay, uh, or someone told you that about 150 kilometers per hour forward speed is your... Uh, is your ideal um, ideal speed for glide? Uh, yeah, you you notice it empirically. Obviously, when you've got a hundred tracks, you see at which speed you're gliding best, and then uh, same tracks can be analyzed. Uh, uh, the polar curve that you build, I uh, chose the same, give or take a couple of k's. So they all agree. So. When you moved to Slovenia and there was a lot of new cliffs for you to jump and you had this new skill of, uh, and knowledge to use the laser rangefinder, um, you've now opened uh, a significant amount of cliffs. Can you walk us through a little bit about, uh, you know, staying with this technical side of things, um, what your workflow is as far as, you know, finding a cliff, measuring, reading the maps maybe, and how do you, how does it work out for you, your opening process? Uh, it's pretty standard and there are plenty of people who open way more uh, new exits than I do, but the process is simple. You see something and you think, hmm, it could be jumpable. And you look at the topo, the first thing you do is, well, you see if there is a line, if there is a flight path, can you uh, reach a landing area? Then you go and hopefully find the exit and you measure it with a laser. And ideally, you look at your uh, phone or laptop if you're at home, if you uh, don't jump at the same day. There is your uh, laser cliff profile. There is a bunch of your tracks. You look at your worst tracks and see what kind of margin you get. And then uh, you make a call. If it looks reasonable, if the margin is OK, yep, let's go open it. Uh, and if not, leave it till next season when we get best well better suits hopefully when our skill improves uh to uh tell the truth the suits maxed out a few years ago uh performance wise we if we get anything it's really incremental it's like one or two percent of glide in the last few years exits don't improve much since uh rebel so uh it's really pilot skills that's improved in the last few years 
So hopefully next season we will get better and we can open it. A lot of exits are sitting unopened because we think we're just just not good enough, either for the start or for the uh, glide for making the uh, landing area. But if everything looks all right and the margin is okay, then yep, there we go. We just go and open. Do you keep your data on a spreadsheet? Do you use one of the apps? Um, how do you compare, like when you're shooting laser and you get some numbers, how do you compare it to uh, your personals? Uh, Nobody is keeping it on a spreadsheet anymore. There is either a Sky Derby or a baseline. So it seems like people are split 50-50. Uh, in the States, baseline is a bit more popular and Sky Derby is more common in Europe. Uh, they have the same functionality. Uh, as far as analyzing the jump on your own tracks. Uh, the only difference is Sky Derby is open for everyone. As far as you can see, everyone, uh, everyone's tracks. So it's good for competitions. It's good to compare. Uh, baseline, you see your own tracks, and uh, that's about it. So it's great to analyze your own flights. It's just harder to compare to other people. But for a purpose of opening a jump, uh, they both function the same. You've got your own. Uh, tracks, 100 tracks, then you've got your cliff profile and you see if it fits and that's that. Uh, there are other, I suppose, other uh, technicalities as far as weather conditions, whether it's a south face or a north face, and that comes with experience. You know how much uplift, updraft thermals you get on the south face or as it happens to be in Slovenia, most exits for some reason are north or northwest. So you get no help or you get some downdrafts even. You have to account for that. But uh, otherwise, yeah, it's it's your uh, laptop. There is your profile and there is a cliff and see if they match. Yeah, there's definitely um, some exits that I like to wait for the afternoon or only do in the morning just because they get some sun right on the face there. It makes everything a lot more comfortable. Uh, when everything's on the north face, it's uh, less comfortable. Yep. Uh, so you did a lot of, um, testing, uh, to find what the best wingsuit is for you. Uh, you had a post on Facebook a while back, um, comparing all of your data from different suits and whatnot. And it was probably the most compare, uh, most comprehensive comparison I've seen for the suits. Um, can you summarize a little bit about, um, your process through that and, uh, what you found out? Yeah, I guess the background to that would be, uh, I've always liked to uh, track even before wingsuits came up. So the first season in uh, Chirag, which was 96, we uh, went there and everyone was doing 10 seconds and suddenly you track and it's a 20 second delay. It's a whole new jump. And that was a lot of fun. And it naturally continued into wingsuits with the wingsuit. I always liked to uh, fly far. I always like to get well, I glide some flight out of it. Uh, it's not just a suit for, uh, you know, bombing down. And it's at the beginning, there was no choice. We had classics, then we had vampires. And suddenly, Tony suit comes up and people get Tony suits. And I see my friends getting those suits and flying circles around me. So uh, <laughs> I just had to try it and I tried Apache. And it was like a revolution. I couldn't believe that a suit could fly that well. It was really, it, it wasn't a step, it was a jump up. So I switched to it that same day. Uh, and I had a season or two and I, that was fun. And then I stopped 
And then that's when I, then I wasn't jumping for three years. When I came back, again, everything changed. There was another generation, probably two generations of suits up. And I had to learn the whole game again. And I started with uh, Tony Suits. I had a Rebel for a couple of seasons. That was great. But then uh, Tony Suits uh, uh, disappeared. Tony retired, and that was it for it. And there was really uh, no choice left. Uh, I took uh, Squirrel for a try. And again, that was something to uh, <laughs> you had to try to believe it. It was, again, a revolution for uh, well, for me. In terms of performance or comfort or, or, or tell me more? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, in terms of comfort, yes, but mostly in terms of uh, performance. It just happened to coincide with the place I was in. Uh, coincidentally, my closest cliffs, like closest exits to uh, my home, you really have to glide. And the closest one... In fact, uh, I opened it because you really have to have a suit that will make the landing area. So as far as I know, it's only been flown in uh, Jedi 3 and uh, then in uh, in a glider. And the next closest, that's our regular uh, tracking jump. It's a really nice wingsuit flight if you can fly out. And again, it's been flown in uh, Jedi's and in uh, CR Plus and gliders. And that's it. You really have to uh, come out. And it's a really interesting jump. You're flying by terrain all the time. So it's not a skydive. It's actually a very nice visual jump. But you have to make it out. You, and you worked there is with... A, uh, yeah, there is a, mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm cutting you off. What, what, no, it is. What, uh, you started working with Squirrel um, to develop the glider. Uh, tell me a little bit about that process. Uh, that was a project that came out of uh, necessity. There was... A lot of flights I really wanted to either open or keep jumping with slightly bigger margin to make them everyday jumps where I needed just that much more glide and it needed a good start. Basically, I wanted a Jedi 3 that improved a little bit. Jedi 3 was probably four or five years old by then, so it was well overdue for improvement. And it seems like at the time we had either competition suits which would glide real well but they were really made for a skydive they wouldn't exit well or we had rebels that would exit instantly but then you just didn't have that last bit of a glide and uh, squirrel suddenly said hey if that's something you want let's try and that became a project and i think by itself it it was a bit uh raw it could have uh, benefited from another year of development. But I think that gave a lot of insight that went into uh, other lines of suits. So it probably improved Corvid a lot. And uh, at the at the moment, there is a good selection of suits you can have. Well, basically anything you want. You can have a glidey suit, which would be CR+. Plus. You can have a racy suit, which would be CR. You can have Corvid, which is your everyday uh, suit, or Aura, which does it all, or a Glider, which seems to be a very niche suit. Uh, I don't think a lot of people would uh, like it as such. But it was a tool for a specific job, yeah. An early exit and a good glide get somewhere that uh, you wouldn't want. That's for 1% of 
exits where you just wouldn't want to jump it if you didn't have that suit. It is very niche. Um, I'm I'm curious why now what would change your um, selection between a CR plus and a glider? Well, at the moment, uh, I would I like CR plus way better just because it's a fun suit. And at the moment, I think 90% of my flights would be on uh, CR plus. And then if I had to get a new suit now, I think I would just go with a standard Corvette 2 for the tight exits and the regular jumps. So if it was me just buying suits, I would get Corvette 2 and CR plus. Well, CR plus with base mods. Right. And that would cover my whole range. Yeah, I flew the glider three or four times now. And um, it was, uh, I can't think of anything better than learning your polar curve to in because like if you're going too slow, it's just incredibly exhausting on your arms, just holding the form of the suit. So you need a little bit of speed to work with. And, uh, uh, the only thing I can think of like, as uh, that's similar would be back as like when I played little league baseball, like, you know, they, we would put like some weight on a baseball, you know, and swing it around that suit, I think helps you to become a better pilot just because, uh, you learn that lift drag ratio for your suit. Uh, like <laughs> there's just no holding it. If you're, if you're going too slow with to a head high a position. Yeah. Well, it was a specific tool for a specific job. It was not an easy suit to fly. It isn't no. easy. And consequently, 95% of the jumpers don't need it, don't want it. And when they try it, they don't like it. And that's, yeah, that's why it never will be mainstream. I think it could have been better as a prototype that experience would go into other lines of suits, but it was fun to try it as a separate product, I suppose. And there is a lot of experience that came out of that project that improves everything else. I would have liked to see the same suit with a, a little bit more internal pressure that helped uh, make it less exhausting. Yeah, uh, there will be something. Uh, I'm pretty sure down the line, uh, Matt would be the, uh, yeah. the one to speak about it. Yeah. <laughs> but there will, be, uh, there will be something coming up uh, that will uh, take better parts of this project and uh, get rid of the worst ones. So we talked a little bit about um, the new suits, um, all the technology that came out and um, uh, how you started base jumping and, and what it was like in the early phases. Like you think now that there's just, a, you know, people have a more technical approach to the sport. Is there Anything else that sort of stands out to you as far as like perhaps the community, um, the way that information is shared, uh, regulations, anything else that's uh, much different, much more different now um, than it was before? Something that stands out more than anything is probably the, uh, the openness. Suddenly information is shared base jumping used to be really secretive in america obviously because it was mostly illegal but even in europe uh the french jumpers always kept their uh, sites uh super secret their topo was a legend you you really had to work hard to get your uh, hands on it and it was like that when i quit the first time and then when i come back suddenly everything is open 
the Frenchies put their book online. To me, it was a shock. I could not believe it because I was still subscribing to the old secret way of life. The exits have to be protected. You cannot show them to the wider public, etc. So took me a year or two to uh, adjust. I was watching it in disbelief. No, this cannot be true. Everything will get burned. And then a year passes. No, everything is fine. In fact, we've got twice as many exits open now. Nothing, nothing burned. Everything is all right. And then a couple of years later, we've got 10 times the exits. Everything is perfect. And then the book went full on online. Now everyone can update it. And a few years down the line, I totally switched my perception. I went full 180 on it. I saw the light information really needs to be shared. It actually works better that way. There are very uh, specific exceptions, maybe a I don't know, two or three or five percent of the uh, jumps talking about mountains mostly that need to stay low key for uh, a specific reason. But the vast majority is online. People share the lasers, the points, the hikes, everything, and it makes things safer. It's it's just safer. It's more fun. And for anyone with half a brain, information makes a difference. It actually improves our uh, safety record. Yeah, I agree with you on that. There's a, I can only think of one jump in France where it's a little bit sensitive because the landing area is on private property and they don't want to have a bunch of jumpers come there. So that one isn't really talked about much. But then, uh, and then a couple in Switzerland where the farmers are really particular, um, where it just couldn't tolerate the number of jumpers that it might see uh, because of ease of access and whatnot. Um, but otherwise, otherwise, yeah, I mean, it just makes so much sense. Like I remember, I mean, for a newer guy like me, like, you know, people would ask me about how to get to a jump, you know, I would send them a pin or something and give them a direction or, you know, just copy and paste and then translate from the the French topo. And now it's like, you know, there's just so much information online that uh, there's it's taken all this mystery out of it in a, in a really positive way too, because you, for one, you get all the correct information you know exactly where you're going. There's no um, rolling the dice on jumping off some cliff that's not even appropriate. And um, and then you also know what you're getting into right before you start the hike or the approach or whatever it is. And I think that that can create a, a bit of margin for people, right? Like if they know that the hike is going to be, you know, six hours, um, it's only the fit people that are going to do that, hopefully. That's interesting. I had a conversation with a Swiss guy, not a Swiss guy, not too long ago, about how he had changed his um, thought process on that as well. And uh, yeah, it's um, that is a huge mental shift in, in in base jumping. I assume since you have so much experience and you've been in, in a long way, people were happy to share with you. Did you ever have to go and explore and and find cliffs for yourself that you knew people had been to? Uh, plenty. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had to go all over it uh, at home. Uh, I had to basically rediscover the uh, the whole country. Uh, the whole Slovenia had to be reopened uh, again uh, because, well, not everyone subscribes to these new ways of uh, sharing, sadly. And uh, there is really no reason for it. I mean, one thing you learn when you uh, base jump is you cannot keep anything secret. If something has been jumped once, 
it will be jumped twice. Anyone with a bit of motivation will come and jump. It's just every time you open a cliff, there are certain uh, risks involved in opening. And we all know a number of uh, fatalities where people died looking for exits. Uh, they didn't even jump. So there is no need to bring all that extra risk over and over again. You might as well share it if you've uh, opened it. And once you share it, you will see huh, nothing bad happened. People who want to come and jump something technical, they will do it regardless. And those who don't have the skill or motivation, they will not. It's the same as in climbing, same as in uh, scuba diving. You've got your sights, you've got your data, and then people decide. Yeah, that uh, seems appropriate. What do you think base jumping has brought to your personal life? I would guess uh, the first step was uh, face your fears and then learn to enjoy them. First step was to recognize you're scared. Second was to uh, deal with it. And third was to really start enjoying it. And then later in the game, uh, it gives you the same that yoga or uh, meditation gives to people. You suddenly realize you're in that moment. You live in the moment and it's right there. And then you like it so much, you, uh, you want to stretch it. You want to uh, stretch it to your uh, regular everyday life with, well, different levels of success. But at least you've seen it and you know what to uh, aim for. Well, that's great. So, um, calm through fear and then, um, maybe setting a baseline and happiness that you want to incorporate in the rest of your life. Interesting. Yeah. And it, it just brings a lot of fun into it as well. Oh man. So places much. that you've never, uh, that you would never see without this sport. The, uh, the people, the people are half the fun. You meet a really unique, really interesting, unusual people. And uh, yeah, all of it combined, it's fun. There is a bit of uh, good that comes out of it. Well, personal development, maybe you can call it that. Uh, there is obviously a dark side of it, but just about anything in life has a dark side. So uh, yeah, we just deal with it. What has your um, journey through loss been like? Huh. That's a difficult question. And I guess we had a little bit too much uh, to lose in this game, too many friends. And if you compare it to anything else, it probably is best compared to uh, people who went through war. You lose so many close friends. Uh, it's not normal at all. At some point, I personally started to become a bit numb and i guess everyone deals with it differently but yeah you notice the numbness when it happens for the 10th for the 20th time uh the brain just shuts the emotional part especially if you're directly involved if you have to deal with it you just do all the technical bits whatever it happens to be recovery or deal with uh consequences but yeah emotions shut down so I don't think 
there is much to uh, learn or teach anyone uh, that comes out of it. It's just part of the game. You have to deal with extreme emotions and one way of your body or your uh, mind dealing with it is by uh, trying to numb it down a bit. Yeah, I'm nodding in agreement. Um, I mean, I think there's something to take away from it. And the fact that, uh, I mean, someone who's experienced as you um, sharing your experience um, can normalize that in a way. And, you know, people that are listening to this may, like me, nod my head in agreement or learn about it for the first time. So I think it's there's value in talking about it and, and this, this shared experience. Not to get all wishy-washy on it, but, um, you know, I, f I feel like that numbness um, is deceiving because uh, at first you sort of like you don't feel anything and you kind of go along your, your path uh, thinking everything's okay. But then it sort of manifests in other ways uh, that, you know, it pops up in some frustration or, or some anger or it just it, it rears its head in other parts of your life. And even if it doesn't feel, it feels normal or it feels like you're good at it, it shows up later on. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, emotions come up one way or another, but once you, uh, once you see them, uh, it's not a problem anymore. You just feel numb and then an hour later you want to cry. Well, you just go and cry and that's that. But again, after you've been in the game for a while and you lost some friends jumping and some went the other way, you notice people who uh, died outside of base jumping probably didn't have it any better. In fact, a lot of the time it's it's been worse. So maybe it's not the worst way to go. And regardless, you don't have a choice as such. You jump because you have to. Uh, and when I stopped those couple of times, that was one of the lessons uh, I took out of you jump because you have to. As soon as you don't have to jump, you stop. You don't quit, it just quits you. You literally, you just realize, oh, it's been a year since I jumped and I feel okay, I feel fine. So if you can live your life and not jump, yeah, by all means, please do. Because jumping is not good for you. It's not practical. There is no reason to do it unless you just have to. We all jump because we have to. Whatever uh, specific details might be, but we all have to jump. And as long as we have to, we jump. As soon as we can stop, we stop. And uh, that's that. Do you keep that in mind regularly? Like, do you check in with yourself? Like, hey, I want to do this. I have to do this. Um... Absolutely, yeah. That's that's how you uh, decide in the morning. You wake up, and it's a lot of work to make a jump, especially in the mountains. You have to drive. You have to hike a few hours. Sometimes you actually have to uh, find new exits. You don't know if you will find it, if you will have to hike down, or if it's going to be nighttime and you will have to sleep somewhere you know, on a snowy mountain. So it's a lot of work and risk. And when you wake up at 5 in the morning, if you can find the motivation to go through all of it, yeah, you go and jump. But if you don't have to do that, you will just turn over and sleep again, and that's it. <laughs> You'll find yourself on the beach in the afternoon. 
Right. Do you, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the dark side of it. Um, do you still find a lot of beauty in bass? Absolutely. That's the, well, that's probably the only thing that gets me going, the uh, beauty, especially the beauty in the mountains. It's, well, it's exactly the same reason that slightly more normal people, if you can say that, uh, go and climb big mountains. In fact, those guys are hardcore. They're way more hardcore than us, majority of them. But the same reason people go and climb something, let's say, anything above seven or 8,000 meters. That's way more hardcore than base jumping, deadlier, riskier. People have the same reason. They just have to do it. Same as us. Yeah, there's something about but, high altitude alpinism that's um, that kind of, you know, people, I would say the wider public sort of shake their head at what we're doing. And then in the same time, we'll celebrate climbers. And um, I don't know what it is exactly. Perhaps it's like the jumping off of something that people just cannot relate to. But um Everything that comes down to base uh, and risk is uh, mostly, uh, you know, human induced, right? Choices that we make. And yep. in the high mountains, the mountains are making those choices for you. Yeah. But the common theme there, beyond the fact that we have to go and do it, it's the beauty of it, the incredible beauty when you get up high. It just takes you. The beauty actually puts you in that moment. You don't actually have to jump off. You can just stand there and look around and your brain just stops. It shuts. It shuts down. The beauty is that same Zen moment. And a lot, I think a lot of the people go there for the beauty of it. And especially lately, I see myself in the mountains just for the sake of being in the mountains. And the jump, uh, the jump could be beautiful, but a lot of the time it's just means of getting down, really. So for me personally, it's a minor part of the game at this stage. Uh, maybe because I never got into proxy flying and really cutting trees with my uh, fingernails. Uh, for me, being in the mountains is the uh, biggest part of the fun. Would you consider yourself an independent thinker? Yeah, that would <laughs> that would apply to just about every base jumper, uh, I suppose, with rare exceptions. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. Um, I think that um, with the the rise of social media, there's a lot of um, lines that people want to fly, and they see that they learn about it on a video, and then they copy it, and um, you know, if, if that's how you get your pleasure, that's, that's cool. And I don't want to judge anybody's practice. It's just more that, um, there's a, a loss of maybe the artistic side of the, or the creative side of, you know, forging your own line. And, um, you know, I think you have that opportunity of being, um, where it is that you live and, and flying from new exits of like, Oh, this is what feels good. This is what I, this is the line that I want to draw in the sky right here. And for me, that's, that's, that's an element of creativity and wingsuiting that, um, that's a little bit different. And that's, I would say more independent minded. 
yeah, I personally always liked uh, new places. Whether it's travel, whether it's new exits, new mountains. Uh, I stopped going to Lauterbrunnen long, long, long time ago. Just because, well, yeah, it's convenient, but there is nothing new. And it's nice to uh, revisit maybe once in 10 years. And there has been some new stuff open. And yeah, you can possibly open one or two uh, yourself. But then, no, I don't think uh, <laughs> going the same places or same jumps over and over again is a lot of fun uh, for me. Some people are different. Some people actually like a line that they can race a hundred times and they get the kick out of improving that particular line. And I mean, whatever gets you off, that's great. It's just there are many ways to have fun. And luckily there is endless world around. You can go and open new jumps, new flights, new countries. In fact, every day there is still maybe three quarters of the world that's completely unexplored. So yeah, we'll never uh, run out of uh, new places. There is no worries here. There are certainly lots of new places to explore. What do you um, what do you think um, holds um, base holds for you in your future? Uh, it's hard to say because it changes. One thing you learn, whether it's jumping, whether you're doing yoga, uh, nothing is permanent. Everything keeps changing, and I can see myself stopping again at some point and I can see restarting yet again. Uh, nothing is fixed. It really goes with your mood swings or the way your life is taking shape. At the moment, uh, I'm six months into my uh, ACL rehab, so I haven't jumped for half a year. And it definitely feels different from when I was in the mountains every other day. But that will change soon again. Hopefully in a couple of months, I'll be up on a cliff and the process starts again over and over. That's the beauty of life. It keeps changing. <laughs> Nothing is permanent. So it's just like jump. You go up, then you go down. If you just went up and stayed on the cliff, uh, most likely you just freeze to death when winter came. <laughs> well, Yuri, uh, this has been a pleasure. And like you say, nothing's permanent. And uh, this podcast is just the same. So um, it's yep. been a pleasure chatting with you. And um, again, thank you for being on. Yeah, likewise. It will be a pleasure to see you on a cliff, be it France, Slovenia or elsewhere. It's going to be fun. Let's make it happen. Yep, let's do it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, please don't hesitate to hit us up. A big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound mixer and co-producer. We love you, man. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit exitpointpodcast.com. See you on the next one.